Hello and welcome to another edition of World of Noise. I'm your host, Bob Ham. I hope everyone is staying safe out there during these strange times we are living in. Not to ring the same bell that I did last week, but I think it's important to remind every, anyone that likes this show or likes the many other fantastic programs we have here on X-Ray that the music scene in Portland, from bands to venues to record stores to instrument shops, are, is facing an uphill battle. But that's why I'm going to still be making this show, to keep the spotlight on the folks making the music or supporting those artists that make the music. I hope you'll stick with me and World of Noise, and I hope you'll stick with X-Ray as we try to traverse these uncharted waters together. And I hope you keep your ears out for the sounds and the people that resonate with you and give them your support. With that out of the way, let's start the show. When the artist known as ALN started writing and recording music under the name Mizmore, he was in pain. Not physical pain, but the kind of existential spiritual pain that has fueled amazing art like the film Synecdoche, New York, or one of ALN's recent inspirations, Albert Camus' 1942 essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. And the only way that ALN knew how to express that pain was through the unrelenting and heavy sound of black metal. Since the release of his 2012 self-titled debut, ALN and Mizmore has evolved at a very human pace. Releasing music as inspiration struck him, and he had the time to commit to recording it. As everything you'll hear on a Mizmore recording, any of the three full lengths or the various singles he's released to date, was all performed entirely by ALN. Even with the slow growth of his music, Mizmore has struck a deep chord in listeners. The 2016 release Yod and last year's phenomenal album Cairn resonated with legions of metal fans and listeners who had gone through some of the same philosophical and spiritual struggles that he documents in his music, wrestling with Christianity and the absurdity of existence. His work has also found its way into the ears of music critics around the world. Chris Richards, the pop music critic for the Washington Post, caught one of Mizmore's rare live performances in D.C. and found it, as he writes, extraordinary, dense, demanding, tempestuous music delivered with a composure that felt something like grace. Mizmore was set to play a local show at the Star Theater this month, a warm-up to a few East Coast gigs and some European dates. But while those have all been called off, I didn't want to miss my chance to learn more about ALN's fascinating journey and the inspiration behind the raging and passionate music he has been making these last few years. Uh, by the way, a small correction. Uh, later on in this interview, I mistakenly say that I read about Mizmore over at Pitchfork. That didn't happen. Uh, they've written about a lot of metal over the years, but have yet to tackle Mizmore's work. But with the way that ALN's music has been reaching folks far and wide, it's only a matter of time. Well, ALN from Mizmore, thank you for being on the line with me today here on World of Noise. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get the uh, the obvious question out of the way first. Uh, you know, this craziness with coronavirus has affected so many musicians, so many creative people. Uh, what has happened to you and your world now that all of these lockdowns and postponements and cancellations have been happening around the world? I'm watching my shows 
getting canceled. Um, Ms. Moore is uh, primarily a studio project because it's my one-man project, but I do have a live band for performances. We just do them very rarely, purposefully. And uh, I'm uh, somehow able to live in the slim margin of uh, being able to live off Ms. Moore myself at the moment. And the few shows that I schedule in the year are really big paydays for me. So one, I have five shows this year where we've been learning the new album as a full set to go perform out in the world. We've been working on it for the past six months at least and just got it finished up. And our debut show for it has already been canceled. And the other four shows, I think it's just a matter of time until they get canceled. And this is a very, very large part of my income for the the year that I've that I've allotted to come in for during these five performances. So I know everyone's getting hit and suffering in terms of income, uh, but that is a way in which artists are suffering from it. It's kind of a game changer for my my yearly income that I'm pulling in, planning on pulling in, and no longer able to pull in. Right, and I think that's the case with so many musicians. So why don't we start to uh, try to direct people to how they can get your music, support you directly, um, so people can go to, what is your, you have a Bandcamp page, so what is the URL for that? Yeah, I have a Bandcamp page I sell my digital music on. It's mismore.bandcamp.com. But I sell my merchandise on Big Cartel, and that's mismore.bigcartel.com. Those are the uh, the most direct ways to support me right now. Excellent. Well, I hope uh, anyone listening goes and does that. Um, I wanted to start by talking about a photograph that was on, I think it was a very recent post to probably your Facebook page somewhere on social media of you getting baptized. Um, and yeah. this was, uh, I, you, you looked to be in your teen years, I think when this was happening. Yeah, this happened in 2009. I was 19 or I was 18. Okay. And I, you know, I, I, I want to start there because of, um, a lot of the subject matter that, that has come out in the last couple of Mismore records, especially the most recent one, Cairn, has been to deal with your, uh, for lack of a better term, loss of faith and moving away from Christianity, even though I think the first Mismore record dealt with Christianity and your struggles with that, but now you've been moving past that. But to to start from that beginning part of Mismore, I mean, was that the 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 thrust of why you wanted to start this project was to deal with those issues of struggling with your faith in Christianity. Absolutely, yeah. That's the the first and foremost reason that the the music came into being. I was uh, struggling with my faith. Uh, I was indoctrinated as a child and raised in Western evangelical Christianity. And by the time I was a young teen, I didn't take it very seriously. But when I was a late teen and, and young adult, I had a conversion experience whereby I came to accept Christianity on my own terms and take it seriously as an adult instead of it just being my parents' religion. And I spent a couple years in serious pursuit of that. And uh, at the end of that time, I became very disillusioned and full of doubts and um, 
my depression and anxiety were getting really bad and I slowly uh, lost my faith and stopped trying. It was a really long process, but um, I pressed into music making, uh, as I've done for the greater part of my life, to deal with this struggle. And uh, it took the form of of black metal and, and doom metal. And I just made the first album really, really lo-fi on my computer without any microphones, just straight into the little dot on my laptop that is a microphone and uh, had no intention of releasing it to the public or anything. It was just like a, a journal for me where I was getting catharsis from these uh, negative and dark emotions I was feeling. So it, it's more is just the the outpouring uh, of me dealing with with losing my faith, and it's evolved over the past eight years. But um, it exists for that sole purpose. And at first, it was for no one else but me. And then over the years, I learned that uh, people connected with it, and I wasn't alone in this struggle. And it's kind of encouraged me to come out into the public more with it. You have talked in other interviews about how you've used music to deal with uh, emotional stuff, especially you as you were talking about your issues with depression and anxiety. Um, when you were making music, even before Mismore, was was it in this same vein, in this metal, hard music, heavy music vein, or was it a, a different sound? Um, a little bit of both. Like directly before Mismore, I was involved in a couple bands. Um, one one called Sorceress in particular that um, developed a, a stoner, metal, doom metal, kind of psych rock sort of sound. I mean, that's one example of me playing playing metal with it, but that band wasn't as much like out of necessity for emotional catharsis. That was more like just writing fantastical narratives and having fun writing music with my friends. But going a lot further back, I've been making one-man recordings since as early as the sixth grade. Uh, like full-length albums with art I made too and like selling them in the halls at school to kids, to my friends. Um, and that music was very far from being metal, but I've always felt the need to create to deal with my, with my feelings and my thoughts. And I've always liked really sad music. So even the, the non-metal music I've made by myself as early as uh, being a little kid in, in sixth grade, I've always felt that I've been doing it out of necessity because of the way that I feel, like melancholic, for lack of a better word. And it's just kind of evolved and and, and uh, changed genres and taken different forms and shapes throughout the years. And Mismore is just what, what it's called right now for me, what people have gotten interested in. Where did you uh, grow up? 
Salem, Oregon. Okay, so you have been here in Oregonian for your whole life then. Yeah, yeah. I've spent um, some time living abroad, but uh, I was born in Salem and uh, have lived in Portland for the greater part of the last eight years. Now, when you were growing up, was music a big part of your family's life? I mean, even outside, probably, uh, you know, uh, religious and sacred music? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I learned to play drums from my dad when I was in third grade. He was a drummer, is a drummer, and uh, bought a drum kit for the family that he taught me the basics on, and then I got some formal training later on, too, and my brothers were into playing guitar. I learned the basics from them when I was in like fifth grade. Um, so I started playing in bands with friends as early as fourth, fifth grade, drums, guitar, whatever anyone could do. Uh, and I picked it up first from, from my family. Okay. Now, uh, when you finally found music that was kind of your own, that you really connected with, what sort of stuff were you listening to? Um, like going really far back, first being inspired to like record music on my own, probably like as a, as a sixth grader, I was listening mostly to Radiohead, the Beatles. Um, I also, you know, like, liked a lot of, um, I don't know, kind of new, new metal and angsty music like uh, when in elementary school i like to listen to like lincoln park and pod and stuff that's like metal inspired but uh pretty gross um <laughs> but the the way that my recordings sounded weren't in that vein they were more yeah i don't know maybe maybe radiohead would be the the best parallel to draw i liked to do just really simple kind of like jazzy dark melancholic clean guitars and, um, you know, minor harmonic vocal lines. Like, I was inspired by, like, Enya and, and Radiohead and Pink Floyd and stuff like that. Wow. Um, so when did uh, the style of music you're playing now, this very doom metal, black metal sound, I mean, when did you start uh, developing an interest in that and wanting to move in that direction? Um, probably around the middle of my my teen years and when i was 16 the band i was playing in uh that was kind of like a classic rock inspired kind of like the doors sounding band uh dissolved and a couple of the members we started a harder rock band we were like influenced by eagles of death metal queens of the stone age black sabbath um so we wanted this like kind of groovy sleazy but heavy rock sound and that band was called love machine and the same four members that were in that band we only made one album and then we realized we wanted to go even further and we changed our name to sorceress and became like a stoner metal doom metal band So 16, 17, 18, I started listening to like Electric Wizard and Sleep and Witch, Witchcraft, Earth, Bongzilla, I don't know, that kind of stuff made its way into, 
into my ears at that time. And, and from that point, it was just a slow, no pun intended, evolution to like extreme doom metal, like Burning Witch, and then finally like funeral doom metal, like Worship and Evoken. Um, and through listening to extreme doom metal, like on labels like Southern Lord, I was exposed to black metal, like Wolves in the Throne Room, Cascadian black metal. And that's when I started. I really only started liking black metal right around the time that I was inspired to make Mesmore, like 2011, 2012. Was that an easy transition for you as a musician to start taking on you know, black metal and doom metal as a, as a concept? For doom metal, it was really easy and natural. Yeah, just like has in different stages of that evolution from from black sabbath to burning witch and everything in between uh was really intuitive for me uh, in the sense that it seemed to resonate with my inner feelings and thoughts like the melancholia of it was just so palpable that i was like oh my god this is this is my music that i i've taken me this long to find but this is exactly what it sounds like and feels like to be me was my my sort of attitude toward it uh with black metal it was different because i'm much more into like the groove of slower music and the, and the fills that that opens up and enables a player to insert kind of the style and flavor they can have and all of that and black metal is just like go 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 blast beats super fast so that was a lot more that took a lot more adjusting for me in listening and in playing to figure out that I liked that kind of thing at all and was inspired by it and could do it. I want to ask about the the two different elements of of that sound that um I want to ask about how you uh, again adjusted to playing music like this because as you said Ms. Moore is a one man project a one person project so uh how is it to play drums like that and how is it to get into the vocal uh range that uh, is everyone knows from black metal that really growly heavy sound yeah i, th- I think the drums was probably the big the bigger challenge for me there of like learning to play fast and i just did that through practice i'm still not very good at it um i was in this band for a while called Urzite. It's a Portland black metal band. And I was the drummer and vocalist of that. And so I had a little bit more experience having to push myself to make certain parts come across on the recordings or live or whatever, had to actually be able to be a good black metal drummer, um, which I'm still not, but I (laughs) did my best. As for vocals, um, I've kind of been experimenting with different vocal styles for a long time, uh, outside of metal even. It's something that I just am into. And um, a long time ago, let's see, I think it was 08 or 09, 
my friend Matthew, uh, the metal world, more commonly knows him as MSW, was making the first Hell album, uh, which we didn't know at the time was anything, but he had me come over to do some studio vocals for him, and I was doing things that I had kind of done at the end of Sorceress, uh, these sort of inhaled ring wraith sounding shrieks and uh also trying out some like gnarly raspy in your throat in your head kind of classic black metal sounding vocals to me these were all just sounds that like came from lord of the rings ring wraiths and Gollum and stuff and when i hear really hellish evil sounding music like those are the most evil sounds that can come out of anything so it's kind of what i'm inspired to to portray behind the music there it's just kind of an avenue i i go down now as you said you released the first mismo record in 2012 and Mm -hmm. you, you didn't as you said you didn't really do this for anyone but yourself um when did you start to get uh a sense that people were connecting with this and really wanting to uh connect with you about the stuff you were wrestling with on this album um, that happened in a few different stages, um, uh, as simple as a close friend, um, that, that knew I was making the album, showing it to them when it was done, uh, and them telling me that they're very surprised that I'm not even going to put this online for anyone to find or be able to hear. So they encouraged me to just at least just put it on the internet. Don't don't care about it. Don't promote it. Whatever. Just like put it up. You worked so hard on it, and that turned into people contacting me, saying, "I I must have a physical copy of this. A digital download. I'm a metal collector. A digital download doesn't legitimize owning a release. I need to own a physical copy of it." So I made like 10 CDs for some people, which turned into more CDs, which, you know, turned into wanting to make another album and, and, and whatnot. Um, so that, that's kind of like the, the beginning of it, but that, that didn't really flesh out to people like telling me that it emotionally was important for them, that they could relate to it until I kind of became comfortable with releasing lyrics and talking about what the albums were about. Cause at first it was very mysterical, uh, mysterious, excuse me, mysterical is not a word, uh, and, and veiled, um, on, on purpose. I didn't want anyone to know what it was about. Cause I was kind of embarrassed about the subject matter. I wasn't sure that many people in the metal world could relate with struggling to believe in Christianity. Everyone's already like, firmly an atheist or anti-christian is very common vibe in the metal world so it took it took a few years for me to to start including lyrics and explanations and like pulling back the veil so to speak for people to understand what it was about more and that just opened up the floodgates of people telling me their own stories and struggles that are similar and uh, it was really powerful and when did this finally develop into you wanting to make this a live entity to put a band together and perform this music in front of people? That happened for the first time in 2016. Um, I was set to work with the label Gilead Media, who's my current label, for the first time uh, to release my full length from that year called Yod. And um, 
they were going to put on this fest called Migration Fest for the first time uh, in Olympia, Washington. And since the release was going to come out like on that weekend, uh, Adam, who's the head of the label, asked me if I'd consider doing it live. And so it just took, it took the right situation. Um, someone actually giving me an offer, someone that I trusted and cared about, uh, the audience, like it was going to be, it just seemed right. And, uh, so I was interested, but I still didn't want to do it unless it was going to be like essentially my four or my three best friends playing in the band with me because of how personal and sensitive the subject matter of Mismore is. I'm, and I'm content to just do it in my bedroom. I'm really not trying to just like get random hired guns to make this thing happen. Uh, it, it needs to be people I care about that I'm comfortable playing music with. Like it all just needs to be the right thing for me. And that all worked out. <laughs> I'm super thankful for that. And we, we performed me and, uh, three of my closest friends that I've been playing music with for years and have known like my whole life um, that have been there with me and some of those past bands I've already explained. And we did, yeah, we did that for a single performance in 2016 and then we didn't play again until 2018 when we got invited to play Roadburn. handful of shows festivals um we went on tour for the first time last year but it was still pretty exclusive we did like five shows on the west coast four shows on the east coast and a show in the netherlands we just like flew around and played a few shows tried to take it to the main markets but everyone's got a pretty tight schedule with their with their normal lives back home and i'm not trying to just get random people to play with me so we do it when we can do it and it's special is that important to you to keep it very small in that way, only doing these sort of small tours and a few dates here and there uh, because of how personal this music is to you and how personal the lyrics you're singing are to you? Um, in a sense, yeah. I, for me, it's more important that um, it's with the right people, my, my bandmates, and uh, that we all, you know, whenever the four of us can make it happen, it happens. That part's really important to me. Um, and I mean, the the personal aspect of it is like a little bit difficult. But now that I've seen what good it can do for certain people, I'm that's not something that holds me back. I'm I'm excited to to bring the show around and make it accessible for people that that it's important to, um, but doing that at all costs, whether, uh, you know, and having to make sacrifices like who I'm playing with and what kinds of shows we do, uh, that stuff just isn't as important to, to shrug off for me to, I don't know that I have to keep that stuff in mind and not just accept every show and try to all of a sudden be this fully active touring band that, 
is on the road all the time because that's the other part of it like none of us really like touring we've done it for years in other bands and like it's an essential part of of the whole thing especially if you're making a living off of it but um i don't know i don't think any of us are trying to like be out nine months out of the year or anything like that you know so we've just been taking it one step at a time when offers come in, when, when new ideas come up, seeing, seeing if everyone's on the same page and seeing what, what we want to do. And I hope that like, I, I want to play more shows and tour more actually. Um, it'd be for, for me, I would love to do a full U S tour for Karen, a full European tour for Karen. I mean, I've gotten the criticism enough times now from people, especially in Europe where like, I don't know if Roadburn's going to happen this year, but we're scheduled to uh, make our third appearance in Europe as an exclusive show in the Netherlands. <laughs> and we've gone to no other countries before. This, this will be the third time we've gone over and only played one show in the Netherlands. And I've, I get the feedback all the time of, please come here, please come here, please come here. And now I, I feel like I almost owe it to people to try to make it more accessible and make the rounds, but we just don't have very much time between the four of us to make things like that happen. So we're just doing the best we can. <laughs> and when did it become obvious that you, at least up until very recently, as you talked about early on in this interview, when did it become a, a point where you could make this your only job or you could just do Mismore and be a creative person as a, as a job and not have to worry about working a day job. When did that happen? Uh, that happened, let's see, it would be two years in June ago that I took, took the leap. And, um, I mean, I barely make it work and uh, I might get a job like all the time, <laughs> But uh, I'm, I feel really fortunate to have made it this far with it. So I've been able to observe over the, the years of doing Mismore how much money it can make every year. And it's just, you know, a little bit on the side as I'm also working a day job. But I just got to the point at, a, at the job I was working where I was really unhappy. I was working too much. I had no energy or time or creativity. And so I wasn't doing what I loved anymore. And it's like, well this isn't worth it. I'm actually not even able to do this more on the side now because of this job that I don't even care about. So it was kind of an existential moment for me, but I was like, I'm just going to quit. I have some savings and I'm going to make an album. So in June I, I quit and I took a couple months off and then I dove in head first into writing and recording Karen. But that was almost two years ago now, so I've been really, really fortunate to keep being able to sell merch online and get other opportunities to to support me so that I can be creative full time. But I mean, it's really, it's a couple months at a time, you know, and uh, the margin is extremely slim, as I've already explained. And because of this COVID-19 stuff, like, I'm not sure... If I'll come through the other side, only doing Mismore, you know, now that these five 
huge gigs have been canceled for me or I mean, they're not yet, but come on, they're going to be, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really hope not, but I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's a great, it was a big experiment to see if I could improve the quality of my creative output by being creative full time. And, uh, I, I know that underneath it all, it's, it's temporary and it's fragile and that's constantly in the back of my mind. So I, I don't feel like I've arrived at this being my job now. Um, I'm just still able to do it full time at the moment and that will be done when it's done. I'm sure. You, you One aspect that everyone has talked a lot about Karen and that I've, you know, heard from listening through your discography is, is, uh, you know, as you said, you took all this time to work on this record. And I think it really comes through in the production quality for this one. It's a huge kind of leap forward for you sonically. And I think that's also reflected in the lyrics too, where you're taking some, uh, a, not different approach to lyrics, but, but exploring different themes like existentialism, which I think I've read in another interview that you were very inspired by, uh, the myth of Sisyphus. That's right. So, uh, yeah, tell me about the, the evolution of the sound, both uh, musically and lyrically for you, that, that, that got you to Cairn. Sure, yeah. So, so I had all this, this free time that I set up for myself to be able to, to dive in uh, more fully. And um, throughout the years of making Ms. Moore, like at first I did all the recording and mixing my own, and it sounded really lo-fi. Uh, and then I, you know, had some opportunities to have some other folks do that for me and it sounded a bit better but it's this fine line because if i'm gonna like go in and be recorded on someone else's time that's just not how i record mesmore uh i need to like record little parts as i go and like not have it all figured out so that i can go just slam it out in the studio real quick it's just not how my creative process works so i did that a few times and was like not super happy with how rushed it was. And so I wanted to get better at recording and mixing myself so that I could be the artist and the engineer and do the creative process, how I like to do it, uh, take my time and whatnot. Um, so with Karen, I, I invested a bit more money into new gear, recording gear, microphones, interfaces, that kind of stuff, software, because um, up until that point, I was recording on like a, a Yamaha 16-track, 16 16-bit, 16 uh, all-in-one like console DAW and with faders and everything. And like it, you know, you can get good at that and it can sound cool, but it still is a limited piece of technology. And I was coming up against those limits and not liking the results. So I really wanted to move into the industry standard world of 24 bit recordings on pro software. Uh, it, it, you know, so I was, uh, I was making investments and buying new stuff. I was, uh, learning a lot. I was, I read a book on, on recording and mixing. I was, uh, consulting with my friend Sonny, who's the engineer that mixes a lot of my stuff. He is uh, probably one of the most talented guys I know, getting lots of advice, asking him lots of questions, setting myself up uh, for, for going into the home studio, but really wanting to make sure that everything was good before I even set up a mic. So 
I had to learn how to like tune my drums for real and uh, line up mic capsules and check for phase and just all sorts of stuff I've never even thought about. Just like, yeah, throw up a mic, let's record, I've got this music, let's get it out. Um, so I, I just took a lot of time uh, with the pre-production and, and the prep and, and the production itself. Um, probably tracked for a couple of months going through each instrument, uh, treating the room and getting equipment worked on and dialed in and uh, having maintenance done and just getting every sound to the point where I really liked the way it sounded, even before a microphone was even set up. So I just like went down every rabbit hole and got really tedious with everything and tried to get, I was going to, I was going to mix it myself too. Um, but I had a really generous offer from Sonny again to work with him. And it was just plain that it would be a better record if he were involved because he's so good at what he does, uh, that what it turned out to be was that I just got the best possible sounds I could. And did it did a good you know good enough job doing a rough mix and and getting it presented to him and then I flew down to LA where he lives where his studio is and we spent a week with me in the room mixing it together where I could learn from him ask him all sorts of questions even though he was in the captain's chair because he's got all the outboard gear and he's got the ears and it came out sounding really really good I'm really happy about it um, so yeah well, that's the, the the music element of it. Again, I wanted to, to now ask about you know the, the lyrical content to this. Yeah, which is what you what you said as I as we as you mentioned earlier. You know, you uh, were very inspired by the myth of Sisyphus and this whole the existential uh, quality of that that piece of writing. So, uh, where did you come across that first off? Yeah, that was a that was a really great book for me to stumble upon because with Ms. Moore, I don't really seek out the experience of writing this music it has to kind of write itself because it comes from this deep and troubled place inside me and uh, that only bubbles to the surface and needs to be expressed every so often uh, and I just wait for that to happen um, so I was I was feeling that stirring kind of inside of me uh, I had released Yod in 2016 and then I did a single called This Unabating Wakefulness in 2018 and I had been working at this job for a while and feeling really frustrated. And there was all this stuff bubbling up inside me, but I had no clue what kind of a statement it was to be. What, I didn't even know what I felt or what I was thinking. Um, so it took some soul searching. I knew that I wanted to be creative and get something out. I just didn't know what it was yet. I had already spent all this time with Mismore articulating my loss of faith and, and where it's got me. And I was really tired of kind of summarizing that over and over again. I kind of had something new I wanted to say, something that kind of expanded on what I 
touched on with this unabating wakefulness, which the song is about like anxiety and insomnia, but it's also about like this lingering on this, this wakefulness that won't end. It's like, we've, I've decided that, that God's not real. And I've had this big, you know, cataclysmic event in my inner life. And now that's done. And I'm just here still. So I need to know like why I'm here, what the purpose of things are, what the explanation of things are, if not that. I mean, I had a whole worldview shatter and it explained everything and and now I'm just left with nothing. Um, so I kind of was already talking about that with this unabating wakefulness, this kind of trudging, walking on through life, trying to figure out what the f*** this life even is. of the headspace I was in, but still without any uh, inklings as to what I wanted to do with that. And I started researching absurdism uh, just out of the blue, because I was coming to this conclusion within myself that this whole life experience is completely absurd. And I really wanted to express that somehow. And I was researching absurdism and it led me to Albert Camus and Myth of Sisyphus. And I checked it out from the library. I, I didn't even know there was a branch of philosophy called absurdism. It was just like, who else has thought that this life is absurd? Let's get some examples here. <laughs> it's like, all right, here's the father of absurdist philosophy. Let's read, read his book. And it was just one of those experiences where it took every word straight out of my mouth. I was floored by it. It was a page turner. I finished it in like a day. It's a short book, but it's philosophy. You don't generally like eat up information that quickly in that field. Um, so I was really, really inspired by it. He just took every word out of my mouth and hit the nail on the head and gave, he does this great job of, of using symbolism and imagery too. And he just totally, inspired me. I was like, I have, I know what to write about now. Like his central premise and idea is that, uh, the, the universe is inherently devoid of an ultimate meaning and mankind is constantly in search of meaning and that those are the two guiding tenets of our world we live in. And when they coexist, it's completely absurd. You could have a world where only one exists, like there is meaning, for example, and that's not absurd. But when both exist, when both facts exist, it creates an absurd situation. And a person can have one of three sort of uh, rea reactions to that. They can, um, they can reject the premise and say, no, I think that there is ultimate meaning and I'm going to have faith in that faith in God, the leap of faith out of, out of the situation, they can kill themselves because they've decided that with this information, life is no longer worth living if there's no purpose or meaning, 
or they can accept the situation for what it is and live in the face of the absurd every single day and define their own meaning. And he postulates that obviously option three is the only viable one because the other two are suicide, either literally or philosophically. And so I wanted to take that idea and adapt it to my concept of the cairns and wandering the desert and finding your way. That's a, an amazing record, I have to say. It's one of the, one of the best things I heard last year, and Thank you. Um, of course, and uh, and I feel like you know you were getting a lot of attention for for uh, is it Yod? Is that how you say this the second album? Yeah. Yeah. So you're getting a lot of attention for for Yod. You know, you're getting write ups and you know Pitchfork. Your your tour that you went on, you were written up in the Washington Post. I remember reading a review of that. And this one, Pitchfork uh, wrote about Yod. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure they reviewed it. Uh, I know they oh, they reviewed the most recent one as well. But uh, I, oh, I, I know I, I read seen... about it somewhere. <laughs> okay. Great. I didn't know that Pitchfork knew about Mismore. Yeah, yeah. I th- I th- I'm, I'm anyway, pretty sure that's where I'm pretty sure that's where I found out about you for the first time and realized, oh my goodness, there's this guy here in Portland making this amazing music. I've got to start paying attention here. And oh wow, yeah. I mean, how has that been to to see? Outside of just like personal, you know, people reaching out to you on a personal level and and, and connecting with what you're saying and what you're singing about, um, I mean, how is it? D- does the critical attention matter to you? Is it just a, a nice little sort of a, a addition to all this nice attention you've gotten from your fans? Um, yeah, I think I think I'd be lying if I said it doesn't matter. I think it's amazing to see. It's surreal. It's like better than anything I could have hoped for because in the, in the very beginning, like I mentioned, I, I was doing this just for me and I wasn't even going to release my music. That's how personal it was. So like whether it's individuals or sites, blogs, magazines, whatever, it always really impresses and touches me when people love my music. Um, I, I'd say it's a, a wonderful cherry on top. I'd be making the music either way. Um, and it's just so cool to me that anyone gives a f- and recognizes it and likes it. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's been a trip. I never thought that when I was making that first album in my bedroom and not planning on showing anyone that in eight years it would be my source of income. Right. Now, I've read this in another interview uh, of yours where you touched on this a little bit, but have your parents and family heard Mismore? And if so, I mean, what are their, what is their reaction to both what you're singing about and what it sounds like? Yeah. Um, my parents and family have heard Mismore. One of my brothers uh, is an atheist also. And so he's, totally right there with me with all this and he loves it but my other brother and my two parents are still christian and for at least my parents they i mean they can't listen to it they've put it i've tried to show them like mom this song starts with an acoustic guitar maybe you'll like it (laughs) but the second that screaming happens has to be turned off because all they can the only thing they're hearing is their son suffering 
So it's just, it's just hearing the pain and they, they can't see past that. You know, I, I understand there's this, there's a certain generational gap. Like my parents are very, very far from liking the way that blast beats sound, you know, like, and that's fine. Uh, you know, they, I don't expect them aesthetically to like the music, but the fact that this, it's so painful for them that they can't even listen to it um, because of the subject matter and the emotion in it, uh, it hurts, you know. Um, it's something that we talk about. It's an issue. It's a, an active um, issue and story that we're progressing through in our relationship. And my parents are still very supportive of me as a person and as an artist, they still love me a lot and, and, and I, them, but yeah, this has been a huge, a huge chasm for us. Um, they've never seen a Mismore show. They've come and seen hell perform once and it was troubling to them. Uh, my mom cried. Wow. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm out there. My dad is a, a Christian actor he, and he's a minister. And so I'm, I'm like literally out there doing the exact opposite thing of him of like preaching an atheist message. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's stimulated lots of conversations, some of them more edifying than others. Um, my, uh, it's a little bit better with my, my other brother because, you know, he at least likes some aggressive, uh, sounding music. There's not really that issue for him, although Mismore is too dark for him. Um, but I know that the subject matter troubles him. You know, the fact that I've, that I've left my faith ultimately for a believer, even though there's all of this is, you know, any, anything they'll, they'll say to you about your, your lack of faith hopefully will be motivated in love. And there's lots of good intention there. The bottom line for anyone's concern in that situation is the underlying fact that they believe that you're going to hell and need help. Uh, and that's a huge bummer <laughs> and something I don't, I don't believe. So like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Some of, some of the, the beliefs that, that we hold get in the way of our, of our family relationships, but not to the point where like there's like we're not actually cool with each other or anything right i think that but, but yeah it's it's super difficult for them yeah i think that's the most imp- go ahead please uh, i was just going to say i i just remembered because you had mentioned that post of me getting baptized especially stuff like that yeah because they follow me on social media because i'm their their kid and i don't have a a personal one so this is like following me personally on Instagram to them, but I use Mismore specifically for the purpose of, you know, airing these, these thoughts and feelings I have about my spiritual journey. And a lot of that is, is disavowing Christian beliefs and, and, and showing why they're wrong and showing how they affected me negatively, personally, trying to speak out about that stuff to help people. But my, when my parents see that, it's just like an attack on on the beliefs that they still have, on how they raised me. I, I mean, it's just so complicated that uh, they're bound to have a negative emotional reaction to stuff like that. But I've been not censoring myself and still doing my thing. But, you know, now that I'm on social media, which only happened like a little over a year ago, they're more confronted with 
the stuff that bums them out the most. <laughs> and so we've definitely had a lot of conversations about that in the past few months. At the same time, I, you know, knowing, uh, cause I have sort of had the, you know, uh, evangelical world in the background of my life over the years and knowing how some families can completely cut someone out of their life if they don't, you know, follow the same line that they're going down, uh, knowing that your parents are at least, you know, keeping in touch and, and having these difficult conversations with you, that's a pretty huge deal. Absolutely. And I, I'm really thankful for that and respect them for that. Um, and we both we both learn and grow from the conversations that we have, but they're very uncomfortable nonetheless. And I'm sad that what I'm doing makes them sad, especially because it's like a huge part of my identity and and how I live. So are you working on any new Mismore music right now? I'm not. Um like, like I mentioned, it, it's something that I can't really force. And when I, lo- when I just look at it kind of on a graph, it seems to me that I release a full-length album every three or four years and still feels like I just released Cairn. So I still feel like, like I'm in the immediate aftermath of the relief and, and release and catharsis of getting this giant thing called Karen off my back out of my chest so I'm like not feeling super inspired in terms of Mismore to be drawn to my instrument and and create I'm finding other ways to to try and stay active and stay creative Um, but kind of as we talked about too with with the crisis and everything now it's like either time to reinvent yourself or think about other options Absolutely, (laughs) I'm kind of at that kind of at that crossroads right now but I, I posted something today on social media just like a little guitar melody i came up with that i'm just trying to put out there as an offering for folks that are all staying home right now and, and need entertainment and encouragement like a sketch of a future Mismore song, but trying to to find ways to still be inspired and be productive and creative um, outside of these massive undertakings that as they are for me of creating albums, because that makes me not want to be creative. Like, Oh my God, the way I do it is (laughs) so few and far between and such a big undertaking. Like I don't want to do this again for a long time, but then I get all upset because I'm not like, being creative and playing music. So I have to strike that balance and find what that can mean for me when it's not 
making this new big existential statement about my life. You know, life has to happen for that to happen. And enough life hasn't happened yet for another one to happen. Well, if folks uh, have been playing little bits of your music throughout the interview, inter- interjecting little bits of your music throughout the interview, but if you want to hear more of Ms. Moore's music, uh, start at his webpage, mizmor.virb.com, uh, mizmore.bandcamp.com. You can find Ms. Moore. Are you on Instagram and Facebook or just one or the other? I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. Well, you can find ALN there. I thank you so much for taking some time to talk about your journey as a musician and your music. This has been fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity and for having me. That about does it for this edition of World of Noise. Thanks again to ALN for joining me, and thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard and want to hear other episodes of the show, World of Noise is available as a podcast. Just search for us wherever you get your podcasts, or head over to xraypod.com to subscribe. And if you want to reach me, shoot me a message at Twitter, at at WONXray, or my personal account, at Robert Ham Writer. Tune in next week when I'll be joined by singer-songwriter Olivia Aubrey to talk about her latest wonderful album of politically-minded indie rock called Dishonorable Harvest. And I'll be speaking with the future pop performer Jan Julius about their danceable tunes that wrestle playfully with gender and sexuality. All that next time on World of Noise. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>